This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint, you deserve the best security. A divided Israel celebrating its Independence Day, Netanyahu encountering tough questions on American television. On the issue of American television, we will discuss Tucker Carlson and his great replacement theory, now ironically being replaced on Fox News. Ben Smith will be with us. And the Mensch Award will bring us right back to Israel's independence with a sweet story to end with. It's Unholy. I'm Yunit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. It's Unholy, two Jews on the news from Keshet Podcasts. Much going on. I mean, once again, Yoni, we've been talking about these days that Israel goes through, but I've, I'm still fascinated by this collision because we've talked, you mentioned Yom Ha'atzmaut, but just, it doesn't even really count as before because one goes right into the other is uh, Yom HaZikaron Memorial Day. Mm-hmm. And there is, I think the word I used last week was this sort of bipolar, this sort of mood swing where the country goes from grieving and lamenting it's fallen and some, there comes this moment, and it's a second, where suddenly everyone's meant to, you know, put on their party hats and sing happy birthday to themselves, this time for the 75th anniversary. We talked a bit about this last week, but, this, you know, how it's an especially whiplash-inducing change this time because of some of the politics and in the mood in the country. Yeah, I mean, first of all, as you say, it was the decision made by Ben-Gurion, uh, Israel's first prime minister, to put these days right. They're basically uh, sequential to each other. So as you said, Memorial Day and then Independence Day. So on Memorial Day, you're already saying to someone else next to you, have a happy independence. It's a very strange feeling, Memorial Day in Israel for fallen soldiers. It's a very sad uh, day. Ben-Gurion actually thought that the right thing to do for Israel was to realize and feel the price that it is paying for its independence. And of course, this is this has been, uh, you know, a rather um, interesting Independence Day, maybe. I mean, it's it's a year... Interesting in, in the which, Chinese sense of the word. Exactly, exactly. I, I mean, this, yeah. is, this is a national mood which is different. There's not, I would say, too much exuberance. Um, divisions have been exposed. I mean, these societal divisions always existed, but they've come to light in the recent uh, months. So, I mean, it is a different kind of mood. And you mentioned Memorial Day. We were talking last week and asking the question of the bereaved families who are treated as something sacred in this country, right? The, the bereaved families of, of, of fallen soldiers. And they asked for government representatives not to come to military cemeteries like they always do. It's a tradition because of how controversial this government is and the plans to run forward with this um, judicial overhaul. So we should say that six ministers actually canceled uh, and listened to the bereaved families. There was one minister who did not. It would not surprise you to know that the minister who didn't listen was uh, ben Gavir, who did opt to come to the um, memorial service in Beersheba, even though there was a memorial service for the police at the same time, and he is the minister of the police. And that had, Jonathan, really these um, moments, these gut-wrenching, heartbreaking moments of, of families, bereaved families, sort of arguing with each other on Memorial Day, something we've never seen before. Obviously, Ben Gvir himself exacerbating this, but just it, it shows you and kind of it's indicative of the mood. Uh, and and just on that specific Israel. about Beersheva, how, how was he received there? Did it become a scene? 
Well, it, it was. Uh, again, there were there were these arguments that sort of erupted between bereaved families. It seemed there were also some Ben Gvir supporters that were detached from the families themselves, who were um, confronting some of the families in the entrance of the of this uh, this military cemetery. And also, when he finished talking, uh, there were some applause, which seemed a little bit strange because even if you're a Ben Gvir supporter, who applauds at a military cemetery? So. So that was the scene there, as I said, very heartbreaking. There weren't too many of those incidents, but it's enough to be kind of something that breaks a sacred moment and really is, as I said, sort of indicative of the mood of the country, which isn't, you know, we're 75, we're quite young. I mean, think of the United States at that point, not even really cohesive. It's before the Civil War. Like, so I mean, I'm not, not that I'm heaven yes trying to, to <laughs> i got that right. i got that hint, yes yeah, exactly but you know so so this, it is a different kind of mood where i think it's not the happy celebrations that are usually um attached to this day yeah i think the um notion of politicizing that moment is dispiriting a bit i i, I think also you know we should say that there is an extra charge in the very specific person of ben gvir because as you mentioned last week he did not uh, do military service. The army didn't want him. They thought he was too dangerous a figure to have in the ranks. So even at 18, he was noticeably a kind of belligerent, incendiary figure. And again, like we said, in the United States or whatever, you wouldn't particularly expect the politician at a Arlington Memorial Cemetery to have served. But in Israel, every pretty well everyone else has. And so it's quite loaded that you know, people, his supporters, I would say, daring to harangue mourners at a cemetery in his name when he did not serve and their fallen loved ones did. I mean, this, the, the, you know, this pulls at a, a, at a very important thread in the kind mm. of Israeli fabric and uh, it pulls at it in a very disconcerting way. I was just going to make a mention of one other thing, which I had not been particularly aware of before, but Jewish communities here, of some of them circulated a link to watch online the ceremony of the Bereaved Parents Circle, an organization which brings together those who are bereaved among both Israelis and Palestinians and people who've lost children and husbands and wives and loved ones. And that was very affecting Two, there are people who, even in their grief and having, in, in some cases, having lost their, say, children at the hands of, say, a Palestinian terror attack or an Israeli military offensive, nevertheless want to grieve alongside families of, as it were, the other side. And the fact that there, you know, we often report here on those very unsettling sentiments that are abroad. You know, we've talked about Ben Gavir and his supporters. There are also uh, really, you know, uh, inspiring and empathy, uh, examples of extraordinary human empathy available as well in a moment like this. So, yeah, I think the juxtaposition, uh, you know, I've lived it a couple of times. It's very unnerving um, moving from one to the other. It's yet another one of those extraordinary sort of psychological feats that Israeli society pulls off. It's the sort of secular high holy days, if you like, because mm -hmm. it was Yom HaShoah, Holocaust Remembrance Day, the week before we talked about that. So all these big things that go on, I think you mentioned people from abroad, I think correspondents who cover Israel 
the really good ones do really use these moments to explain the country to the outside world. I think those three days put together in a way, if you had to do, we talked about Unholy 101 last week when it was our 101 episode. If you had to do Israel 101, actually witnessing those three days wouldn't do a bad job of conveying what the whole society and place that often apparently mad places all about but the news never sleeps and there's been a bit of that i mean uh, the protests you know it amazes me i've said this before that even with all of this going on they have continued i think it's mm -hmm. now been you know last week was week 16 of those protests was there any sort of hesitation about that continuing through this memorial period? Do people feel, hang on, you know, maybe we shouldn't? Uh, so there was during on. the, there's a, obviously an official ceremony, a torch lighting ceremony in Jerusalem. And while that was going on, there was also this sort of demonstration, alternative independence event uh, in Tel Aviv. So a lot of the protesters were in the street uh, for that. We are looking, we should, we should say, and that's important. We are, we are recording this in, uh, on Thursday afternoon. Tonight, uh, there is a, a million-person protest expected. That is what it's declared. I don't know how many people are going to come. But the right-wing part of Israel is uh, planning to come out uh, in big numbers to support the uh, judicial reform in Jerusalem. This is very interesting because Yariv Levine, the Minister of Justice, Simcha Rotman, the head of the Constitution uh, Committee and the Knesset are going to be there. It's going to be this bizarre Israeli moment where the government is protesting against itself and actually saying we should move forward with this plan. Uh, as far as Netanyahu, in his uh, uh, interviews, one in Hebrew, many in English, has been saying again and again, I am, he didn't use the word freezing, but it was, it was implied, I am waiting, I want to have the broadest consensus on this, which means that he will not move forward as fast as Yariv Levine wants him to. This protest tonight is very important because if they indeed bring out huge numbers, this will give Yariv Levine a very big leverage to say, you have to move forward. We should say, when you mentioned the news, we should say that next week the Knesset returns from it to its summer session. There will be one important thing to do, and that is to pass the budget until the end of May. If that doesn't happen, there's no coalition. And of course, the ultra-Orthodox uh, said they were promised an exemption bill from military service for their support of the budget. So that is going to be the main agenda, which already means to you and kind of signals that the judicial overhaul will have to be sidelined a little bit for this to pass. Although you could imagine these things get bundled up because it's there's horse trading and people say, look, if you want our votes for that, you've got to give us this. Yeah. And there will be some people who will say, in order to give you, Prime Minister, your budget, we want what we want on these other things. So but what they want is an exemption bill. By the way, that won't calm down the protests in the street. The, the original way to get this was to weaken the Supreme Court because the Supreme Court kept throwing out the exemption bills saying they're not, uh, they don't serve uh, equality in Israel. But there will be other ways to do this in different kinds of laws and different kinds of uh, ways. So you will see that being a part of the agenda. I have to say, Jonathan, I watched uh, Benjamin Netanyahu this week, two very hot under his collar and two interviews to a American media, Chuck Todd on NBC and Margaret Brennan on CBS, doing really an amazing job interviewing him and asking him absolutely only questions about domestic policy, only about the judicial overhaul and its ramifications, nothing about Iran, nothing about Saudi Arabia, the global issues he loves talking about. He had to sit there for 15 minutes and answer these questions. This is very uncomfortable for him. There was this moment where uh, Margaret Brennan asked him about Ben Gvir and he started explaining. And then she said, you know, Ben Gvir also called to erase a Palestinian village. And he said, no, no, that's another minister. 
And I thought to myself, that is not a good look for you, Mr. Prime Minister. That is just not. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that is what he's dealing with. He had to cancel the uh, his appearance in the uh, GA of the Federations of North America that was uh, had a conference in Jerusalem. This is, you know, this is feeling uncomfortable for him, I'm sure. Yeah. All, of the, all the things you mentioned are sort of new territory for him. I mean, that meeting to the General Assembly of all those American Jewish leaders, that's just a, a absolute default by rote, un- normal thing for Israeli prime ministers to do. Mm-hmm. He must have done it a two dozen times. I mean, you know, just... He was uh, born to do it, you know? He's it's, born it's ready his to thing. do these things, right? It's his right? thing. And, and then, he, he and was afraid of, he was worried that the, the protest will, would be there and, he, you but, know, he'd be heckled. But this is the change. I mean, because mm-hmm. before, for many, many years, he could appear before audiences like that or American TV interviewers and do his kind of traditional shtick of tough neighborhood, Iran, bomb, subject, verb, uh, Iran, um, every sentence. And he can't play that game anymore. And I, there was a little uh, intimation of it, you know, when he did that interview with Piers Morgan that we talked about here, where suddenly mm-hmm. Piers Morgan was quoting lines to him from a certain column that had been written in the Jewish Chronicle by a, a certain unholy co-host. But, you know, in other words, the internal, as it were, almost mm-hmm. parochial Jewish-Israel debate, which normally never bubbled up to the level where interviewers would pres- confront him about that stuff outside the country. Now he is facing those questions. And it makes you think whether he will be having second thoughts about this whole English language strategy he's been pursuing, which is, mm-hmm. I'll avoid the tough questions inside uh, Israel and in Hebrew by just talking to these, in a way, know-nothing American anchors and TV anchors around the world. Well, guess what? They now know something and they've Mm -hmm. been reading the internal news and they get the problems you've got. And he's not so good with that. And I think that thing you pick up on there, old BB, PR savvy BB would never have made that mistake to say, you know, oh, actually the big time racist, you know, let me correct you. It's this guy, (laughs) not that guy. Um, That tells me he's less sure footed. And in fact, prompts a question I've been thinking about for a while, which is, is he just, and this, you know, this might not be to do with all the political circumstances. This also might be because he's been around a long time. He's not getting any younger. We've got the this week the launch of Joe Biden's campaign video, and everyone absolutely analyzes every word that comes out of his mouth to see is is he missing a step? Is he just was he fragile then, frail there? I have found myself wondering about Netanyahu for the first time, whether he's just not quite as sharp and on it as he always was. Putting aside the specific controversy about the judicial reform are people there where you are beginning to say "Mm, you know he's not quite on top form anymore people in the Likud have been saying it obviously quietly and as unnamed sources but sure i mean there are questions about we talked about this the firing of Yoav Gallant, which uh, created a huge uproar and he had to walk it back the misreading of the public sentiment completely there's a large part of the population that does support this reform but going into this and staying on this track where so many people have been telling you take you know get off it is is a question in itself i think for now his coalition looks more stable than it did a few weeks ago but definitely there's something about that, you know, magician's touch that we would always talk about that is a little, you know, faded a bit. It does seem that way. So the big talking point all around the world, really, which is a mark of how influential he uh, became, has been Tucker Carlson and his 
summary, unceremonious firing by Fox News at the start of the week, particularly of interest to us because as Tucker Carlson became this giant figure, the most watched anchor on US cable news, but also a kind of de facto leader of the national conservative right in America and mainlining theories and ideas that had existed for a long time on the margins, but do have a particular interest and relevance, I think, for us. We thought it would be great to talk with somebody who really knows this subject inside out. Before Yoni introduces him, I was just going to say that uh, since we spoke with him, a couple of developments have come to light. One is that Tucker Carlson has put out a video giving, I was going to say his side of the story. Actually, he doesn't talk about his firing, but just says, I'm still here and, you know, laments the state of debate in America, admits to his part in it and suggests I'll be back in some form. And also more evidence of exactly why Carlson was fired. Reports of messages, text messages that were disparaging spoken language that might be offensive or even racist. And some of those were newly had come to light, according to reports. All of that um, news since we've spoken to our guest. But um, Yonit, why don't you say who we're speaking to on Unholy this week? Ben Smith is the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Semaphore. He is the media call. He was the media columnist for the New York Times and editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed News. His new book is called Traffic, Genius, Rivalry, and Delusion in the Billion Dollar Race to Go Viral. We will talk about that as well because it connects to our topic quite nicely. Ben, thank you so much for talking to us. Th- thanks for having me. This, um, you know, bombshell decision by Fox News announced very late on Monday uh, morning, a few hours before Tucker Carlson's show, actually, the network agreeing to, quote, part ways with actually their biggest star. Do we and actually preventing him from saying goodbye to his viewers? Do we know what happened there? Do we completely have the whole picture? You know, we actually don't. I mean, one of the things about Fox is that You know, I think people talk about whether it's on-air coverage is reliable. The things it says about itself are just unbelievably mendacious. And so when you see anonymous sources close to Fox News quoted saying things about what's happening inside Fox News that make Fox News seem like a slightly normal company that makes normal decisions, those are always lies. And so, you know, they're talking about, well, they had a meeting and they were concerned about him using bad words and being insubordinate to his bosses. It just... I mean, maybe that's why, but it's a pretty weird situation. Like essentially the reasons that he, the official reasons for his firing are that he used ugly language about women and that he was insubordinate, both of which obviously true, but have been true for years. And if you watched his show, you wouldn't be surprised by this. Um, His ratings have been a little weak lately, also been true for a while. And there's also the the fourth and best theory of why he was fired was that when Rupert Murdoch's ex-fiance was a big Tucker Carlson fan and perhaps thought that he was, in fact, sent by God. And when Rupert Murdoch (laughs) broke up with her, he then decided to pour a little salt into the wound by firing Tucker. Who knows? But the fact that he was fired with zero notice, like they called him up on Monday morning and said, you're fired, and announced it minutes later, does not suggest that this was some well-planned, normal corporate decision involving lawyers. It seemed like the kind of decision that a media company that's run by a... 92-year-old who makes snap decisions makes. And, well, I was going to say about the link to the case and the Dominion case, 
you know, the payout, everyone did, I think, think some head is going to roll. If you pay out three quarters of a billion dollars, that's a big hit for a big corporation. And so, But it, I don't think people thought it would be his head that would roll. Yeah, this is another, you know, the, right, the fifth possibility, which mm-hmm. actually also makes no sense, is that, you know, they just settled this massive lawsuit about lying about, you know, rooted in their lies about the 2020 U.S. election. They have another one coming down the pike on the same subject. There is some theory that particularly once you're through all the litigation, you fire some people. But Carlson actually was by no means the worst offender in that lawsuit. Some of his colleagues believed and spread these insane theories. Carlson actually demolished Trump's lawyer on air and debunked the theories, clearly didn't believe them. Did say a bunch of embarrassing things about needing, essentially needing to to let the audience believe whatever it wanted to believe. But but he really wasn't by anywhere near the worst offender. I think you could, in some ways, he just does not come across anywhere near as badly as many of his colleagues could, in, in, in the Dominion case. And there's no particular reason to fire him over it. No. I mean, the sixth theory, which is the naive, wishful thinking theory, but I just wanted to see what you made of it, was whether or not it's too much to think or to read into this that this is a repu- repudiation of his very particular brand of nativist, America first, so-called national conservatism brand of politics. And that's the the political scientists will want to see that as some kind of rejection of that. That seems wrong. So in a narrow sense, that is the most ludicrous theory, right? (laughs) That Rupert Murdoch just woke up one morning and said, God, this is this is what I'm doing is bad for the world. It's bad for democracy. It's bad for the Jews. We gotta just (laughs) We got. I, I, it's time for a change. I'm going to turn over a new leaf at 92 and a half. I mean, what a joke. I mean, I mean, I think that's preposterous. Um, but I think the whatever the actual reason for somebody waking up on a Sunday morning and making that decision, and I do think that in a broader sense, Carlson had you know thought he was bigger than the company, you know, yeah. and was leading a movement away from the Republican Party and the sort of institutional right toward a nativist, populist, new force where, you know, he was as likely to have Viktor Orban as Mitch McConnell on there. I mean, it's a very different, very weird, fringy thing he was doing. And and Fox is mostly populated by engaging sometimes sort of scandalous Republican apparatchiks who want to get Republicans elected who want to serve the bottom line of their employer, Fox Corp, and the Murdoch family. And he was had sort of departed from all that. And at some level, I think that probably contributes to them firing him. But, you know, we many of us have either been fired or fired people or both. And it's pretty unusual just to call them on Monday morning, say you're fired and send a press release. So I I, I, I want to pick up what you said about the brand and the man, because, you know, I, as someone who's been anchoring the evening news on Israel's I guess, most popular station, I know the answer to this question. It's the brand is always bigger than the person. But in this case, I mean, let's talk about who Tucker Carlson was. He wasn't just a television host. You know, he was the most influential voice in the right-wing media. You know, he was even better than Trump in articulating that ideology that you just described. This is not just another kind of host. Isn't this just a huge decision and a huge loss for Fox? I'm not sure it's a huge loss for Fox. It's a Mm -hmm. huge loss for the populist right. I mean, he mm-hmm. was very deliberately and in a very sophisticated way, sort of pulling into the mainstream ideas from the fringe about American identity and white identity, 
about sort of transnational right-wing populism. I mean, Trump does not give this stuff a lot of thought and people who have attempted to sort of create something called Trumpism, you know, Trump has these instincts and plays to the crowd, but Tucker was really deeply drinking from these streams and bringing them into the mainstream. And, you know, ultimately that's not an audience he's going to be able to take with him. You know, the, the people watching Fox news are older than the, the viewers of any other American cable network and people who watch TV in America are very old. And so there are people who navigate to a channel by speaking into their remote, not people who download your new app to check it out. And in fact, there's been a test of that, which is Fox itself launched a streaming service called Fox Nation and put hot new crazy Tucker Carlson documentaries on it and nobody watched it and nobody went there. So I think it's going to be very hard for him to pull meaningful slices of his audience away from Fox. I mean, maybe a few will go away, a few will go here, a few will go there, but ultimately you got people with that television on who are going to watch whatever, you know, probably quite entertaining and superficially similar figure they put in there. Mm-hmm. What's your account of the change in him? Because I remember my own time when I was posted in Washington, he was beginning then, he and I are about the same age, he was already on TV, this very preppy figure with his bow tie, but a mainstream Republican, a bit quirky here and he, there, but he was on CNN and he, he was, was on MSNBC. Then, <laughs> M- then MSNBC, absolutely right. And he would be very chummy with liberals and he was a kind of Washington, you'd see him in La Colline, you know, these restaurants. And then you've, you know, time passes and suddenly he's saying, effectively, he's giving a platform to the so called great replacement theory, which suggests or implies that the people replacing the white population are the Jews, replacing them with a new diverse electorate. I mean, that is quite a journey. What's your account for what explains it? You know, it's funny. I mean, he, yes, and he, he's, I mean, he has a very coherent account of this himself. It's not like you caught him out in something there. Like he's a class trader in his own sort of telling who was inside the establishment, saw how corrupt it was, and is now telling everyone else about how corrupt it was. He also, you know, it's funny, years ago, I was writing a story about Black politics and Barack Obama and Barack Obama and I quoted Al Sharpton, a you know leading kind of Black American figure in it, who likes to sort of position himself as the spokesman for Black people in America. And Obama's spokesman was annoyed at me and said, you know, why do you why why don't you ever call up a spokesman for white people and ask them what white people think? You should call up Tucker Carlson; he's the spokesman for white people. Mm. Um, you know, and this is like 2007, <laughs> and so it's. I do think he was always sort of the avatar of like white American politics. And as that, it's that turned into a kind of, you know, really profoundly scared, angry, resentful kind of politics. He, you know, he, he kind of came to embody that. But also I do think that, you know, when a demagogue connects so deeply with their followers, there's a kind of like, incredible rush from that and he was clearly just sort of feeding and feeding off the reaction he was getting and he was not really in washington much anymore he was living in rural maine he loved drawing sort of these fringy voices left and right actually though mostly right into the conversation and and you know republican politicians were terrified of him you know he was you know staffers on capitol hill would watch his show and introduce legislation the next day so that their bosses could follow what he was doing. He had the power, you know, he could really destroy a primary campaign if he wanted. And they were all terrified of him. I'm sure mm-hmm. they're mostly pretty glad to see him go. Jonathan mentioned the the great replacement theory and how obviously the sort of white 
Americans are replaced by non-white immigrants and how it's very clear. And definitely he never said it out loud, Tucker himself, right, never said that the Jews are the people who replaced them in this conspiracy theory. But that is the the clear uh, story here. So you have that, right, this prominent figure talking about the great replacement theory with no problem at all, evening after evening. And then also that kind of George Soros documentary. It also all sounds like a dog whistling for, for anti-Semites. Do you think he himself is an anti-Semite? I don't know. I tend not to want to try to guess about what's in people's heads or hearts, but clearly Mm -hmm. they were some of the stuff he was reading and influenced by was, you know, was just straightforwardly anti-Semitic. Yeah. And I, and and that sort of the part of the right that is obsessed with the notion that immigration is a democratic party plot to import new people to replace the old people, you know, certainly overlaps with a lot of anti-Semitism. I mean, it's funny how they all go there in the end. I remember just before Glenn Beck wound up his mainstream career, he was doing George Soros, the puppet master. And he was standing in front of some kind of blackboard chalkboard withdrawing the connections. And he literally used the image of a puppet master. One way or another, they are drawn to this trope, this motif. It's somehow in the logic of that kind of populist brand of conservatism, it seems to me. Yeah, I agree. I think there's sort of something that draws you to the Jews when you start telling these stories about globalist conspiracies against the folk, right? Mm -hmm. Right. I I think so. But before we leave him, we should just talk about what you think he might do next. I'm fascinated by your observation that in a way, just because of the technology and the age of the audience, it will be very difficult for him to take that caravan to a newer tech platform involving streaming or anything where the viewers have to get their kind of grandchildren to tell them how to do it. That's interesting to me. But the other thought people are having is politics. And whether or not Trump, yeah, I think he could. Trump says, you know, be be my number two, or does he even run himself as a candidate? What do you think? Could happen. He could run for U.S. Senate. I mean, I think there's sure. I mean, I think he could be a certainly continue to be a leader of this populist right wing movement if he is up for the pay cut, among other things. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's making twenty million dollars a year at Fox, hmm. um, yeah. and he's someone who's had money trouble in his life, and he, I'm not, and I'm, you know, and and has had this quite. I mean, it's a pretty great life, honestly. Imagine you do an hourly broadcast. You live in either beautiful coastal Florida or this really nice part of rural Maine. And once a day you speak to your followers and they love you. Like, wow. And they pay you $20 million. So I don't know. I mean, I think that he's also under contract. You know, they didn't, they just threw him off the air and he's under contract for, I think, another year being paid. I'm sure, you know, if you were being paid 20 million bucks a year, you You have a non-compete clause for sure. Yeah, you might not. I mean, one reason you might not go out and say, here's my side of the story is that you would like to collect your 20 million bucks. I mean, understandable. Um, So I don't know. I mean, I think he could do any of those things. He could write. He was a very interesting, lively writer in his day. He could find some way to try to lead this movement. You know, I don't really know. And if you look at the people who were, you know, there were these very important American figures, Glenn Beck, probably of them all, the most sort of similar to this, who became this, you know, again, sort of followed that Fox audience to its logical conclusion, which was not where most of these Fox hosts go. They mostly ultimately want to serve the Republican Party, um, but sort of followed it off into that space. And got thrown off the air because he was seen as going too far and advertisers canceled and sort of the same sorts of dynamics and 
launched his own independent media company and, you know, I think has probably done fine, but is a totally irrelevant figure. Mm-hmm. And um, others, Bill O'Reilly was this very important Fox host, um, Megyn Kelly. It's not that they've gone away or that they're impoverished, but they're not politically relevant the way the person sitting in that chair is politically relevant. I, I want to talk about your book. It does tie into what we're discussing. It's the insider's account of the rise and fall of BuzzFeed and Gawker Media, and I would call it probably the, the insider's account of the history of online news uh, media. And you talk a lot about the, the clickbait technique, which obviously hasn't disappeared, quite the opposite. It's been sort of absorbed into mainstream media. How does that, I mean, connect the dots for us. How does that? Yeah, so th- you, know, you're, you, you, you read fast. Um, the, I didn't read um, the whole thing. I, I didn't read the whole thing, but what I did read is but very yeah, good. Let me, but actually, I do think, I mean, one, I mean, I do think, right, regardless of what the sort of specific thing that caused mm-hmm. Rupert Murdoch to pull the plug, you know, Tucker's firing is obviously the end of an era. Mm-hmm. And I think there have been these other, I mean, BuzzFeed News, my old shop, very sadly shut down last week. And I do think you sort of step back and there are all these markers of the way in which this era that was defined by the rise of these giant social media platforms and their politicization and the politics revolving around social media is coming to an end. It's coming to an end because people hate it and (laughs) nobody wants that and nobody wants to be in those places where everyone in the world is screaming at the top of their lungs at each other about politics. And from my perspective, you know, I spent a couple of years really like digging into the kind of the origins of this moment in Manhattan and this kind of interesting downtown scene in the early aughts. And one of the things that kept surprising me is as I'm writing about BuzzFeed, it's like, oh, I didn't realize that the founder of 4chan, the sort of vile message board, worked out of BuzzFeed's office, actually. And the bright Andrew Breitbart was a co-founder of Huffington Post. And Steve Bannon and Ben Shapiro, uh, by the way, Ben Shapiro, not quite the same kind of figure. But a lot of these, guy named Benny Johnson, that, that scene and the people who sort of created digital media were mostly progressives and saw themselves as progressives and saw Barack Obama's election as in some way like the culmination of that movement. Obama visited Facebook. It was clear that all these new digital technologies were sort of for progressive young people. And I think... The thing I sort of realized working on the book was that actually, first of all, these sort of populist right-wingers were there all along, like in the room. They were watching this. They were really interested in it. They, And they were less constrained by the rules of journalism and society and, and took them a lot of these tools to their logical conclusion. And the sort of apogee of the whole thing was Trump's election, not Obama's. Um, in the sense so of that, what? Me, in the sense that he was practiced, engaged in clickbait politics was he i mean clickbait i'm not sure clickbait is the word i would use but this particular kind of outrage driven angry social media politics not that social media created trump or right-wing populism but that it was they were wrapped around each other but you but i'm just slightly encouraged by you saying you think something has ended with the tucker carlson move i wonder if you also think elon musk's kind of apparent deliberate trashing of twitter what's the thing that's ending I mean, I think this is, I think the, the sort of marriage of news and information and social media. I mean, I think the world is splintering, right? I mean, these huge social media platforms, Twitter, Facebook, and I agree Musk is screwing up Twitter, but Twitter was in decline already as a cultural mm-hmm. force and he probably accelerated it, but just feels like the moment is over. People, you know, these social media, they're social. You People get, they're like bars or nightclubs. You get sick of it and you go somewhere else. And you can see the world sort of like podcasts are a, a great example of a form of media that is totally separate and private and non-social and it's very hard to like if they leave you if you know if somebody liked the thing you and it said five minutes ago it's pretty hard to share you just have to listen to the thing 
but all sorts of, I mean, email newsletters, which we at Semaphore are very focused on, is another much less social form of news. And and I think tastes have changed. People do not love the way this old ecosystem was working. And not that there won't be elements of it or not that right-wing populist nationalism is going anywhere, but it does feel that the moment is changing. So you went to BuzzFeed. Now you're doing it again with a digital news startup. So tell us how Semaphore is different than what you did before. Like, what are the lessons that... Yeah, I mean, you know, Buzz, I mean, so many lessons. I mean, one is just to, you know, spend less money and build a business um, <laughs> and not take venture capital. Um, but more specifically, I mean, I think, you know, one of the big lessons when the moment changes, there are these huge opportunities. And I think what BuzzFeed saw was, there were Jonah Peretti, who founded it, saw it was sort of the rise of this new kind of media. And we tried to build a news organization sort of purpose-built for social media. I don't think we anticipated that it could crash so fast and so hard. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, at Semaphore, you know, the, the problems people have, like in the old days, you know, we were, it was like, the problem was that you were so curious what everybody around the world was thinking and saying in every publication and every citizen. And it was amazing to suddenly be able to get all that in the same place at the same time. I think, you know, the problem now is that people feel totally overwhelmed and yet simultaneously don't know what to trust. And so that's, that's what we're sort of running at. We're trying to you know, provide the sort of not, you know, relatively small number of great journalists whose names you know, who can tell you what is going on and can also help you navigate, you know, can break news themselves in a very transparent way where they can separate the news and their opinions and give you both. And then also help you navigate all the other stuff out there. So I'm tempted hearing you say that to apply the old Marxist model or dialectical model and say, you went from very new media to very old media when you went to the New York Times, thesis, antithesis, and now Semaphore is a kind of synthesis of those two, that the, you're trying to pick the best of those two things, the the, no, yeah, the novel and the, uh, and the old? Yeah, I would say in preparation for this, I just spent months reading Hegel. That was sort of how I, uh, that's how I typically you do a startup. <laughs> And then just put it all on the site, just you know, for people to read. Exactly, unfiltered. <laughs> the ten news Pure stories synthesis. no one read today. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm. Why don't they ever try that? I'm curious about the responses to the book, though, because it really is an insider's story, and I, you go through your own, you know, thinking and what you, you know, did wrong or not, and your failings and others. I mean, was there a? Did you hear back from people? Was there a? You know, it's. I mean, well, the book comes out May second, and I think mm-hmm. the like. I mean, but I've obviously talked to lots of the participants. I mean, I think it's this sort of funny moment, like the early 2000s is now long enough ago <laughs> that people can see it with a certain kind of distance. But you were the years of your youth. Is there any part of you that is very nostalgic for this period oh, in your life? For being in my 20s? Yes. And New York and <laughs> everything being new Although and was, untested. Yeah, and actually, I mean, this, this, uh, this book was obviously for me an exercise in nostalgia, but slightly like stolen valor nostalgia, because I was a political journalist who kind of copied Gawker and stole the tools that they, in the sort of style to do straight reporting on the blog. And I was, you know, I had little kids young and I was not really invited to those parties and was covering members of the New York City Council and stuff, but like was kind of aware of them and thought they were really cool and was curious about what was going on. And so it was very fun for me to go, you know, like, call up all my favorite bloggers of 15 years ago and ask them what they were thinking. <laughs> <laughs> well, the book is called Traffic, Genius, Rivalry, and Delusion in the Billion Dollar Race to Go Viral. It's about to come out any day now by Ben Smith. Thanks so much for coming on Unholy. 
Thanks so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. And it's, it's nice to talk to you again. Yeah, it's nice to meet you, Jonathan. I've been reading you a long time. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Ben. Smart guy, Ben Smith. Very, very good to talk with him all about uh, his new book, but obviously his insights on Tucker Carlson. The thought that prompted in me was I can picture him you know, leaving and going off onto his own platform somewhere. Yeah, he may not have the reach, etc., as Ben was saying, that you get behind the big microphone at Fox News. But I could picture him as a sort of Father Coughlin figure, you know, the rabble-rousing, demagogic radio broadcaster, big-time anti-Semite in the 1930s on American radio. Something about the direction of travel of Tucker Carlson, this movement that people describe as national conservatism, which has a slightly chilling grammar about it, which is, you know, very America first, another phrase with the 1930s, 40s history. I don't know, it may not happen, but I can see Tucker Carlson in that lineage and in that tradition. Actually, uh, Rachel Maddow, who we talked to on episode 86, I know you remember the episode number. It's interesting because I think she said recently that the difference is that you think that Tucker Carlson has a huge audience. Three million people a night is is a huge average, the biggest uh, audience in cable television. But it's really smaller than Father Coughlin, really smaller. And that means something. Uh, we talked to her about that. We also talked about the difference what happened to Tucker Carlson. I think we talked about that in this conversation with Ben as well. Remember, he started out on MSNBC and she was a pundit on his show in 2005. They had a conversation, a normal conversation between two people who disagree. And something kind of went out off the rails. And I think that that's important. I just could not think... Uh, while we were having this conversation of this line that I love from a poem by Gregory Pardlow, it's actually a relationship between a father and a son. So it's more powerful that way. But I thought of Rupert Murdoch and Tucker Carlson. It's the father saying to the son, I made you, I can unmake you and make another just like you, <laughs> which is, is terrible for a father to say to a son. But that is basically what we're, we're, Rupert Murdoch is saying. I made you, right? And and we're just going to make another one like you, essentially. Yeah. And it's um, sound to make that point because, of course, there were Tucker Carlson's before Tucker Carlson. Mm -hmm. You know, Glenn Beck was massive on Fox. They booted him out, and Bill O'Reilly, and they do manage to find another one. It's not as if this is a you know a finite resource Mm -hmm. of these figures on the American right. I was just going to let our audience into the chat we had with Ben afterwards, where he was telling us that. Tucker Carlson used to do his show from his home in rural Maine or his other home in uh, coastal Florida. And I thought, what, what, on some kind of Zoom call? No, he had a whole studio built in both places. And the team of the show would be down there to produce the program from there so that he didn't have to leave either of these two magnificent homes. I thought, as he told us this, that you, your neat lady, need to talk to your agent <laughs> and get a new setup, a new deal. I, I say nothing about the $20 home. million dollars a year, but this, <laughs> the in-home studio, wow. Okay, awards. We can't end this without awards. Do you want to begin, sir? It's close to your neighborhood. Actually, really close to your neighborhood. Yeah, I was going to say. It's in your neighborhood. Very much in my neighborhood because this week's Chutzpah Award winner is the Member of Parliament for the place I live, Hackney North and Stoke Newington, namely Diane Abbott. Uh, Hugely important figure in British politics, the first black woman MP, 
also known as the person in Parliament who is abused, receives more racist and sexist abuse than any other. But this week, she sent a letter to The Observer in which she took issue with a a writer who had said that Irish, Jewish and traveller people, Gypsy, Roma, traveller people all suffer from racism. Not so, she said, they undoubtedly experience prejudice, which is similar to racism, but not the same because white people with points of difference, such as redheads experience, cannot be compared to people who, for example, were had to sit at the back of the bus in a pre-civil rights America, she says, or couldn't vote in apartheid South Africa, or were manacled on slave ships. She said there were no white-seeming people on those slave ships. I mean, where do you even begin with this? Obviously, for one thing, there are millions of Jewish people who are not white or white-seeming on any definition, but mainly, of course, there was a rather big event in the middle of the 20th century in which Jews suffered a fate rather worse, something rather different to what might be expected for people with, say, red hair. The murder of six million people seemed to have eluded Diane Abbott and... um, people were even longtime supporters of hers. She's a big following on the left of Labour, big friend of Jeremy Corbyn, the previous leader. Even those people could not really defend her. She withdrew the remarks. She apologised for them, but nevertheless has been suspended as a Labour MP and lots of people wondering if she will ever stand for the party again. But I'm afraid for that letter, she does win, I think, our Chutzpah Award for this week. Uh, Okay, I'm going to lighten the mood a little bit if, you know... I don't think we can go darker, so let's just lighten the mood. Sure. Um, I'm returning to Israel's Independence Day. We opened up with that, and I think it would be nice to actually end with it as well. You know that the ceremony, the official ceremony, is the lighting of the torch ceremony. There are 12 torches to symbolize 12 tribes. And one of them, Israel always chooses uh, these stories of inspiration, people who are heroes or just lovely stories. Uh, One of them is a girl named Ofek Rishon who uh, went through a social boycott at school for many years. And then she set up this apparatus to help other kids who are going through the same kind of torment, really, for for a very long time. And And when you say social boycott, you mean that people shunned her at school and wouldn't be friends with her. Right. So that is what she went through. For, for years and any of us on this conversation who went through a period like that in high school or before, I think, could, uh, you know, identify with her. And she uh, spoke just, she had this lovely thing to say when she lit the torch. She said, like, in honor of children, of boys and girls who have known this kind of, of feeling like you're transparent and uh, who feel like they're alone and just know that you're not. I mean, that's just a sweet moment in this whole, we talked about a very different kind of Independence Day in the mood, but that was just this really sweet moment. I think everyone, uh, Israel is watching the television that moment kind of felt that they could identify with her a very worthy winner of our mensch of the week award and uh yeah no that's a rather wonderful story i'm glad you've brought it to us if you have enjoyed this edition of unholy you know what to do which is on facebook or instagram at unholy podcast you can Talk about us, rave about us, rate us, review us, do whatever you can to get spread the word. I was also going to say that if you have suggestions for things you would like us to talk about and uh, and raise on the podcast, put those there as well. And uh, generally, um, let people know all about Unholy as we go to episode 103 next week. <laughs>
three, you're keeping score. That's nice. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to say our thank yous to Guy Glaser, Rom Atik, Omer Primat, and Yair Bashan. And we shall meet next week. See you then. This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint. You deserve the best security.